I want to um, have you turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Now, we've said this before, and you know it's true. You can have union and not have unity. Uh, you can join a man and a woman together in holy deadlock, a uh, wedlock. Now, you've got union, but that doesn't mean you automatically have unity. Uh, you can take two cats, tie their tails together, and throw them over a clothesline. Now, you've got union, <laughs> but you don't have unity. So, it's um, some illustrations that have been given in the Word of God, and I've looked at them before and thought about them, but I guess the older I get, the more important I see that it is, that um, one of the greatest unions of, of all is the union that's between you and your Heavenly Father. Because once you're born into God's family, you are His child for eternity. It can never be severed. So there is a union there, but not necessarily unity because some of God's children are not walking in harmony with their dad. And how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And the Bible says that we sometimes walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. So um, we don't always have this unity between us and the Lord. We have a lot of conflict in life. And so there's a lot of problems that we have and go through. So look there in uh, this verse here. Look in verse 15 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Now, we've talked about before the, you know, Christ is the master of the church and evangelism is the mission of the church. And love is supposed to be the motive of the church. So we have an awful lot that's revealed to us about, about the church in the book of Ephesians. And then he says here in verse 15, See then, see then, that you walk circumspectly. We're often told that that's like a long-tailed cat on a fence with barking dogs on both sides. you really got to just watch your step. And so we want to have the unity, the peace that we're supposed to have between us and the Lord. And if we take care of it this way, between us and God, then it's a lot easier to take care of it this way. Because the Lord will help you, guide you through it. Some people are just troublemakers, always looking for trouble, trying to start trouble, trying to start a fire. And sometimes they do it with the, you know, the tongue and just cut and criticize. And, and those things are not wise. But you'll notice what he says here in verse 16. Redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Now, as a child of God, we will get more out of our life if we stay in unity with the Lord. In other words, there ought not be things in our life that causes disunity, where we grieve the Holy Spirit. And, of course, it's possible. We can. And so when we do, then uh, we quench the Holy Spirit. Because it means that we don't get done what should be done. And so we quench Him. He's not able to flow through us the way He wants and get done what He wants. See, this is all about what He wants done. We're just supposed to be a tool that He can use. And then he says here in verse 17, uh, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So the reason for knowing the will of God is because, well, we're supposed to do it. So you study the Word in order to know the will, so that, uh, you know, you keep studying the Word and knowing the will, and studying the Word and knowing the will. 
And God keeps leading and guides you as you go. Then in verse 18, And be not drunk with wine, because it uh, has an influence over you. It can influence you. And the best way never to get drunk is don't take the drink. I've never worried about becoming a drunk. Because I have to take the first drink first. If I never take that first drink, I never have to worry about it. I've never seen anybody get drunk who didn't drink. And I was also told that if you don't hit the fifth on the fourth, you'll be able to go forth on the fifth. But now look at the last part of verse 18. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. It means you and I are supposed to let the Holy Spirit control our life. And as we've said before, you can be filled with, um, you know, hatred. Hatred controls you. Malice, malice controls you. Envy, envy controls you. And jealousy, all, everything you can mention, it controls you. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that um, the Holy Spirit controls you. If you're controlled by love, that, then that wouldn't be a wonderful thing. So you and I are to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that the fruits of the Spirit control us. So we have the patience and the meekness and the kindness and all that that we're supposed to have. But then he gets into explaining what he means by what he's saying. So the Holy Spirit wants to control you and I in several areas of our life. So you see there in verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So does God want us to do that? Well, yes. So God must be concerned about the music we hear and listen to and so on. In verse 20, giving thanks, giving thanks once in a while for all things unto God, giving thanks always for all things. And uh, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's uh, something God wants us to do. And see, the closer you are in obedience to the Holy Spirit and He controls your life, the easier it is to do all of these things. But if you don't stay right with the Lord and strong in the Lord, then these things become a burden, a heavy burden, because you don't really want to do it, and you don't have the strength to do it because you're not right with the Lord yourself. So it strips you of all your, your patience and your joy, your love, and so forth. And it's hard for you to be that shining Christian that you know you should be. Then he says there, and uh, it's not a whole message on marriage, but he does make a few comments. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submitting yourself. So this is what really serving the Lord's about, and we're supposed to do this. And the wife submits to the man's authority, and the man submits to the woman's needs. See, the wisdom of the man is that he knows the needs of the wife, and he tries to meet those needs. And she has emotional needs and all that thing. So you learn to be considerate of each other. Now, look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Where it makes a statement here. Chapter 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, this unity that God's talking about is the the Holy Spirit controlling your life. So then he makes a statement also there in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect or a mature man into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So these are things that God wants us to do in our life. And so he says now, there's things that the wife is supposed to do. There's things that the husband's supposed to do. And... Um, it says down here in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as a continual act of kindness. Well, I was nice to her one time. 
Oh, that's nice. But it's a continual act of kindness, a continual act of love and consideration and all that. Even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, when he makes this statement here, when it comes to your body, isn't it true that when he says in verse 29, you will nourish and take care of your body? It means when your body is hungry, do you like to feed it? And sometimes it's hungrier than it needs to be, right? right. Sometimes you overfeed it sometimes, right? right? Well, he talks about us meeting the needs of our mate. And he says his in verse 31, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one fled. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church because it's a type of it. So we're supposed to love one another like the Lord loves us. And so the man is to love his wife and so on. And he's the head of the, the home and he's supposed to be, well, the one supposed to make the decisions and be the spiritual leader and the, you know, the but a lot, of, a lot of men don't. They don't take up their role. They don't take it. And sometimes the woman will take, and, take it away from them. But it's not set up sometimes the way it's supposed to be. And it causes disunity. And there's always the arguing. Because, you know, you don't trust a person's judgment. Well, you just don't know what I'm married to. No, and I don't want to know. And so there's always this antagonism. In other words, it wouldn't take much just to go, somebody's got to adjust and all of a sudden, they can have peace and harmony if they want. But it's sometimes it's a one of, you, you give in first. I will not you. No, 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 you. And so they have the conflict all their life instead of, it wouldn't take much. And all of a sudden, everything fits, and you'll be surprised. Now, this is important. Take your Bible and turn there to the Gospel of John in chapter 10. The Gospel of John in chapter 10. In John chapter 10, there is this illustration that we've used before, but it's because it's right there in the scriptures. It's about Jesus Christ being the good shepherd. These illustrations are in the word of God because it helps us to see what God meant by this, this unity uh, because of the union. Now, you can have sheep and you can have a shepherd, but sometimes those sheep don't belong to that shepherd. And he can call them and they won't follow him because he doesn't recognize their voice. And so it makes this statement that we have here in the Word of God. Look there in verse 13. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. In other words, there are pastors, there are a lot of preachers, that don't really care for the, the sheep. They don't care whether or not you grow spiritually or not, whether you have that peace and joy of knowing you have eternal life or not. See, when you teach, for example, Calvinism, and tell a person that you have to look at your life in order to prove whether or not you're really saved, you cause so much turmoil and so much pressure. That's, it's undue. It's not needed. And it causes people to worry about whether or not they're really saved or not because, well, I don't really know if I, my good works are good enough because now you've got to look at the evidence to prove that you are genuine and start with. 
So you don't need all that stuff. And then sometimes there's preachers who won't warn the flock. See, we're supposed to warn the flock when things are not right and teachers that are not right and people on radio and things like that and some things that goes on in the world. Because you can't just feed the flock, although you just fatten them for the kill, or if you just warn them, and then you starve them to death. So there's a, a thin line of trying to get that thing right. But notice what he says in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. Then down there in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. See, there's something between the shepherd and the sheep. Now, we have two natures. And so we don't always hear the shepherd and we don't always follow the shepherd because we got two ears, one from God and one from the world, and we have two sets of eyes, and we see there, but we also see here, and uh, we can sometimes love the wrong things, follow the wrong things, we hear the wrong things, and sometimes our whole lives get all messed up. And so and we do have that, you know, union with the Lord, but we don't have the unity that we ought to have, because we don't listen, and we don't follow and so there's conflict between us and the Lord. And the more you get out of shape between you and God, the more it's going to happen with people. See, even though people don't always do you right, God will never do you wrong. So don't take out your anger against God because of the way people are. And uh, don't treat God bad just because people treat you bad. And sometimes whenever the Lord doesn't seem to answer your prayers the way you think he should, don't take it out on people. And you've known, you've seen people who somebody upsets them, and next thing you know, they're upset with everybody. And it don't matter what you say or do, they just uh, be mean and ugly. And God doesn't want that from, from his children. He wants us to do what's right. But I want you to look back here in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And there's two verses here that talks about the, the body of Christ, the body. Well, we are the body of Christ. We're the church. Well, the body needs a head. And you know that you have a body. And your head is connected. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm glad that your head's connected or you forget where you placed it. Well, I'm glad my head is connected to my body. But the body really doesn't do much without, you know, the head. You've got to have a brain that tells you what to do and where to go and how to use all parts of your body. So we need the head. But the head needs the body. Otherwise, the head can't do anything. That's why the Lord uses the illustration. What if you were nothing but a great big old eyeball? You were born, you were nothing but an eyeball. But you could really see good. Boy, could you see. But you couldn't, you couldn't eat, you couldn't talk, couldn't smell, couldn't hear. But buddy, could you see. Well, God didn't just make us a big old eyeball. He gave us a body with all kind of parts to it. And every one of them is important. And they're supposed to work together. Now, they have a union. They're all joined together in this one body. But there's supposed to be unity where the body works together as a unit the way God intended. And sometimes uh, you get a splinter in your foot and it can affect the whole body. Or you get an ulcer, and buddy, it can really affect you. Get a headache and see. I mean, the body doesn't want to go. It's just, you feel terrible. So there needs to be this. 
So look there in verse 22. And hath put all things, all things, under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So Christ is the head, and we are the body. And the body is spiritually connected to the head. And so we need to be in union with him. So the body is not to go its own way and the head go another way. We will get more accomplished if we do what the head tells us to do. So the head gave us the word and the body is supposed to read, study the word, come together and function the way God wants us to. So we have an authority. The church has an authority. It's not the pastor. It's Christ. He's the head of the church. I'm just supposed to tell you what the head said by teaching what the Word of God says. And you have the Holy Spirit. So you're supposed to study and verify whether or not, is, is that really what it says? I believe that God wants you to know the Word of God just as well as I do. I'm just to lead you into things. Bring things to your remembrance. But not always teach you some new thing because you're supposed to be studying and learning new things on your own. Do you ever read the Bible and find something on your own that nobody told you? It's a wonderful feeling. You say, I learned this all by myself. I've done that many a time. And then I'll go off to some meeting and some preacher get up there and preach exactly what I said. And I can't stand that. No, not really. But I thought, I had it first. And I hate somebody teaching some truth that I just found. And nobody's ever found this little nugget. And then somebody said, you know, that's... I read that in the book of a hundred years ago or so. But you and I realize that we have someone that's in charge of us. And so the head tells me what to do. And the head tells you what to do. And if you listen to the head and I listen to the head, then shouldn't the body be working together? If we're both filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit's controlling you, and you, and you, and you, and you're all being controlled by the Holy Spirit, shouldn't there be unity and not just union? So we are supposed to, unless, now is it possible for somebody to get bent out of shape? Does everybody in here have an old sin nature? Anybody have an old Amalek? Y'all remember when I first came here, I used a little baby doll. Anybody remember that little baby doll? About three of you. I'm going to have to get out of Mike Tyson one more time. I, who remembers that? You couldn't see that baby doll. <laughs> I did when I first came down here, I used that little baby doll. That was like our old sinful nature. And this was Mike Tyson. He's that one that wants to beat you up all the time, you know. And he's always after you. Now, take your Bible and turn to the book of John, chapter 15. The book of John and chapter 15. Now, you and I, we know that we're supposed to, you know, bear fruit. But there's a good question that somebody asked. And I'm going to tell you who, who asked the question. A lot of people asked the question, but he put it down in print. And so... Um, I'll read it to you. In John chapter 15, let's look there. And look in verse 1. This is where you will find union, but not so much as the unity. 
where they work together. Look in verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. And the branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. And he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is as cast forth as a branch, and is withered. Men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now one thing to keep in mind. You can be saved and not be a disciple. And you can be a disciple and not be saved. You see, a disciple is a follower, a learner. And people who followed Christ in John chapter 6, and many walk no more with Him. But you can be saved and not follow Him, not serve Him. And then there's people who will follow and try to live by Christian principles and never trust Him as their Savior. But wouldn't it be great if those who trust Him as Savior became good disciples? And that's what you want. Now here in John chapter 15, you have where he says, every branch in me, every branch in me. So we believe that um, the branch is the believer. Christ is the vine. And so the branch is in the vine. And it's in the vine for a reason. Because there's certain natural juices that flows up and comes out through the vine. And lo and behold, God wants us to have fruit. So, Notice what it says there in verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. So can there be a branch in the vine that does not have any fruit? But see, that causes a problem with those who believe that are Calvinists, believe in the perseverance of the faith, that there has to be fruit. There must be fruit, because that's the evidence that you're in the vine. And if the branch doesn't bear fruit, then that's a sign you're not really saved. These are some very troublesome verses for some of them. Here's what a person had asked this question. His name is Roger Frank Hauser, and uh, he's with the group that I had gone out and spoken spoke a long time ago, Free Grace Alliance. But uh, this is uh, one of the questions that was asked. Does such a person exist? One who claims faith in Jesus and produces no fruit. Is this person saved or lost? If he's saved, no fruit. So what happens to those who don't have any fruit? You cut them down, throw them in the fire, they go to hell. They burn up. Look what it says in verse 6. 
If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they're burned. See there? That's what happens to all of those people who refuse to bring forth fruit. Now, wouldn't it be nice if I uh, interpreted the scriptures like that? I mean, it says this, but I mean, I put a little twist to it. That's all. So the question is, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, can there be a branch in Christ that does not bear fruit? Yes. And this is what he says. Even though he takes it away, whatever, but there was a branch that was in him that did not bear fruit. He taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, in this little illustration, does it say that the one who brings forth fruit is really saved, and the one who didn't bring forth fruit isn't really saved? It's not the evidences of salvation. This is talking about abiding in Him. It's not how to be saved. It's about God's children following the Lord, obeying the Lord, serving the Lord. It's talking about the unity that you have, not just the union that you have. So he tells us that this is what he wants us to do. Remember, the phrase, any branch in me, implies that this branch is a believer. And I agree with that. Another question. Can I really know if a person has produced no fruit? Because remember, many people who believe that you have to have evidences in your life to prove that you're saved, well then you automatically are becoming a fruit inspector. Because now you have to examine, is there any fruit on that branch. And if there's no fruit on the branch, you have to come to the conclusion that he's not really saved. But let me ask you this way. How can I possibly know if indeed someone has no fruit in their lifetime? Just because you have no fruit today, and I don't see any fruit today, does that mean you will never have any fruit? Isn't it possible that some people can be saved, maybe spend 5, 10, 15 years of their life and never win a soul to Christ? Is that possible? And then dedicate their lives to the Lord and then win thousands to the Lord. See, you were ready to put that guy into the hell and, well, he had some fruit later. Are you and I truly qualified to decide and to prove, give accurate evidence that Somebody has never brought forth any fruit. You and I would have to see every person, every day of their life, every moment of their life, to decide whether or not they have no fruit. You and I are not capable of doing that. So therefore, don't go down that road. It's a slippery slope. Whether you bring forth fruit or no fruit, once you are his child, you are his child. Is it the will of God that his children bring forth fruit? Amen. Yes. You can bring forth fruit. And if you do, God says he'll prune you so that you can bring forth more fruit. And more fruit. But is it possible that a person who used to have a lot of fruit 
can get to where they have no fruit. You may be a great soul winner today, but is it possible that tomorrow you're not or the next year? And is it possible that you used to do a lot of great things for the Lord and can you become cold and calloused and hardened and never win another soul to Christ? Well, then that would prove you weren't really saved. But you did bring all those fruit. Oh, that was a sign you were really saved. But now you're not really saved. You see how confusing it can be. And that's what a lot of people preach and teach. Another question. If there is no fruit and there's a branch that brings forth more fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit, how much fruit do you have to bear over the none to be the evidence that you're really saved? If you have to have fruit, there's no fruit, there is fruit. How much fruit makes it fruit enough to be my evidence that I'm really saved? One soul, two souls. Ten. One a week. One a month. Thirty dollar bin, thirty. What do you give me? Thirty. Thirty. Give me thirty. What do you give me? Thirty dollar bin. Thirty dollar bin. Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Thirty dollar bin. No, it's once you trust Christ as your Savior, you are in the vine. God wants us to bring forth fruit, and just because you brought forth some fruit. And then more fruit and much fruit, did that make a difference in how much you were really saved? You were more saved than just those who brought forth some fruit. But if you brought a lot of fruit, ah, you're really saved. And then well, you're gloriously saved. It's like having three caskets up here. This man here, he's dead. This man here, he's really dead. This man over here, he's gloriously dead. Dead is dead. Saved is saved. And the amount of fruit or no fruit doesn't add to your salvation or diminish your salvation. Once you have eternal life, you have eternal life forever and ever. And this is why God wants us to let the Holy Spirit control our life and abide in Him. Because the person the branch, that doesn't abide in Christ and serve the purpose which God intended, your Christian life, you're going to wither on the vine. And you're not going to have the fruit that you could have had. See, a lot of Christians have beautiful foliage. You know, they have the leaves. They got their limbs in the right spot. They look beautiful. They just don't have any fruit. Now, Christ came by a fig tree and he saw a fig tree. And it had no fruit on it. Could have had beautiful foliage. And some Christians have really done a good job, you know, coming out with some great Christian character. They live right, talk right, they're faithful, they're everything but no fruit. Now, do you think God is pleased with a Christian, even though they have good character, trying to do all the right things, but they just don't have any fruit? Should you be able to explain the gospel to somebody? You can do that. 
It may scare you to death, but you can do it. I would not want to face God without at least one fruit. Now, you don't have to have any. You still go to heaven. But now, he says down here, and I want you to read this again. Look in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. See, to win souls, you try to stay right with the Lord. And you've got to use the gospel. The Holy Spirit, see, uses the message that we teach. So you're abiding in it. You're trusting His Word. When you share the gospel, it's because you believe this is what God wants you to do. You believe that if you sow the seed, somebody's liable to believe it. And you believe that. And so you're a co-laborer with Christ. You're not so much as working for Him as you're working with Him. You're working with Him. You're abiding in Christ. So you and I should stay where we've been placed. And that's why He placed us in this world in different places, because there's fruit that needs to be reached. And so we are supposed to do this. And if you don't, then it ruins your testimony. People will not believe you, and they don't want nothing to do with you. Live a good, godly life. Otherwise, people will look at you and consider you nothing more than a, a hypocrite. Practice what you preach. Have a good testimony. And in that verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Symbolic. As a branch. And men gather them. Now, men will gather the branches that are dead and there's no fruit. And men will put those and burn those up. God doesn't. But you're like a dead branch. You're a Christian. You're living in this life, and God wants you to bear forth fruit, and not to do so is, is like men who cut off these dead branches off of these fruit trees, and then they gather them up and they burn them. They're useless. And that's what he's talking about. A Christian is supposed to, look what he says in verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear, what's that word? Much fruit. Not just some fruit, not just more fruit. Much fruit. But you see, whether or not you win souls is not so much dependent upon the Lord as it does upon your faithfulness and your abiding in the Lord. Abiding in His will. Doing what God wants you to do with your life. That's the purpose of our life. What did He tell the apostles? He says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. As though that's it. That's the greatest thing in all the world. Follow me and I'll make you rich. Follow me, I'll make you a millionaire. Follow me and I'll... No, he said, I'll make you a fisher of men. So if you're following him, you should be doing what? Fishing. If you're not fishing, are you following? These are just things you've got to solve in your own mind. I'm not your God. I'm not your judge. I'm just telling you that this is what burned inside of my brain for so many years. This is why I had to go to Bible college. I couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, it really tore me up. I had to have some answers because I knew I didn't. Last thing I wanted was to live my life and then stand before the Lord. And the Lord say, why didn't you do with your life what I wanted? I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. And there's so much I did not understand. But I knew I, I got to do more than what I'm doing. I, a lost man can do what I'm doing. Is that my purpose in life, to do what a lost man can do? And that's it. It's got to be more. And so I uh, hope these verses will help you just a little bit. See, that's why in verse 8, the last part of it says, that's why he says, so shall you be my what? Disciple. 
You see, for salvation, you don't have to bear fruit. You don't have to win people to Christ. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do nothing. To go to heaven, you have to trust Christ as your Savior, and He'll save you, give you eternal life. But if you want the blessings of life, then you need to win people to the Lord. And that's where it all comes down to. This is you and me. This is sin. We all have sin upon us. God loves us. Now, He hates our sin, but He loves us. And to pay for this sin is eternal separation in hell. Separation from God for all eternity. But God loves us and wants us to go to heaven. And to go to heaven, we have to be perfect, and none of us are. We've all come short of God's perfection. So God says you cannot save yourself, not by your works of righteousness. This hen represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh. Came into the world because he loves us. Hates our sin because our sin separates us from the Lord. So Jesus Christ, who had no sin, didn't have to die. But because he loved his Father, he said, that the world may know that I love my Father, I will do this. Even so I do. Came back from the dead and said he wanted us to believe that he did it for us. So when you believe it, he puts this payment to your account, you become a child of God. That salvation is the gift has nothing to do with you doing anything, just trusting what he did for you. And that's not a work. That's been saved by grace. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, or if you're watching by Internet, remember the only thing you have to do is the only thing you can do, and that is will you believe on Jesus Christ? Will you believe? Anything? or anyone who requires more than just believing or trusting its works for salvation. There's nothing more you have to do than to believe that what Christ did, He did that for you. He paid for your sins. Will you believe that? And if you'll believe it, He'll put that payment He made to your account and you go to heaven on what Jesus Christ did for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, anyone will say, yes, that made sense to me and I will trust Christ as my Savior. And if you'll trust Him, He'll save you. And if you're watching by internet, right there on the screen, a little statement, yes, I will trust Christ as my Savior. I pray that you will. Father, thank you again for your blessings. Thank you for all you do, for giving us a free gift of eternal life. And Father, we also thank you for those that today heard the gospel and received it. And so we ask your blessings upon Jacqueline. Thank you so much for her love for you and her testimony that so many people could come together because of the efforts that she put forth. And we're just thankful for those, those fruits. And Father, we ask now your blessings upon each one here. And bless our efforts, bless our work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.